0: This is Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. I'm Brian Thompson in Rome.
1: And co-presenting from São Paulo this edition on food systems, I'm Kayla Carvalho. In this month's edition, as the world readies itself for the UN's food systems pre-summit in July, we are going all the way from farm to plate. And to understand what a food system is, we'll be talking to Martin Frick, Deputy Special Envoy for the Food System Summit. We'll also be checking in with EFAD's Associate Vice President, Michael Vangineken, about EFAD's perspectives on the summit and what it can bring to the debate.
0: Also in the program will be Brazilian chef Bella Gil. With many of the most famous chefs being men, she talks about gender and cuisine and also how chefs can use their influence to encourage sustainable consumption. We then hear more about the Karen people in Thailand and what indigenous food systems can teach us.
1: Then, we have news on plastics, agriculture and packaging. And our reporter, Ryan Weigt, tells us about food miles, or the distance that food travels to get to our table, and its environmental impact. Finally, we'll get to hear from farmers themselves, as they tell us all about how they fit into the food system today.
0: Plus, news from Asia Climate Week. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories? And who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favourite podcast platform and please rate us. This is Farms Food Future. The Food Systems Summit is being organised as part of the Decade of Action to achieve the Sustainable Development Goals by 2030. The summit will launch bold new actions to deliver progress on all 17 of the SDGs each of which relies to some degree on healthier, more sustainable and equitable food systems. The summit takes place in September, but the all-important groundwork is kicking off at the pre-summit in Rome at the end of July. Martin Frick is deputy to the UN Special Envoy for the Food Systems Summit. I asked him in a crowded marketplace what the summit is bringing to the table that other meetings aren't. It's a strange thing to think about how central
2: food systems are for everything SDG and still how we've been sort of talking about it without talking about it. So for example, greenhouse gas emissions Um, coming out of the UNFCCC process, I see and I have seen how so many decades We've been speaking about transport. We've been talking about um, civil aviation, energy production. All of that is incredibly important. Um, But if you see that the accumulated emissions of food systems are way above one third of the global emissions, then you're looking basically at the biggest source of greenhouse gas emissions on this planet. But look at it also from a social and um, human rights perspective. Food systems are the one bit where you can see how unequal and in simple terms, how unfair the world is. We have hunger numbers going up after many years where we succeeded to reduce them, not least because of the COVID pandemic. And the number of people who simply cannot afford healthy and nutritious food is staggering. We are talking about 3 billion people. And, you know, hunger is a known problem and SDG2 pledges to end hunger. But we also have um, incredible numbers of people who are suffering from other forms of malnutrition. There is an obesity epidemic underway. And in terms of the current COVID pandemic, um, I would just like to quote Dr. Tedros from the World Health Organization, who said that bringing nutritious food to people is our first line of defense against COVID.
0: So would you say definitely the pandemic has changed the way we look at food systems? Well, interestingly enough,
2: um, the Secretary General has announced the Food Systems Summit just before the COVID pandemic. So even without COVID, it was understood that there is a massive problem with our food systems. Um, But the COVID pandemic has just made it so blatantly obvious on a whole range of things. Um, Obviously, in many developing countries, you've seen food systems simply collapsing by um, supply chains not working anymore. But we have also seen that many hotspots of covid many you know centers of covid where around um, underpaid workers and migrant workers in food production and processing with fruit pickers for example with people working in the meat sector where often migrant workers are working under unbelievably bad conditions and you know as i just said um it is precisely the world's poorest who cannot afford healthy diets, who are most dying from COVID. So that is um, adding an actual dimension to the food systems crisis that we are seeing.
0: Martin, the summit's come in for some criticism about who is represented and positions do at times seem to be increasingly polarized. What's being done to find a way forward through the summit? Thank you. Um, This summit is presumed to be a people
2: summit and we do that um, in many different ways. For example, our central thinking machine in the summit is five action tracks. And while normally in the UN summit, those action tracks would be led or co-led by ambassadors or ministers, we've been asking civil society leaders to lead these five action tracks. And we were inviting everyone to participate in that. So today, the majority of the more than 400 people being engaged in the action tracks are actually coming from civil society, academia, indigenous groups, food producer associations, and so on. There is a high level of mistrust, um, particularly against industrial agriculture. And since the summit preparation had a bit of a slow start. Like with anyone, COVID hit us and delayed our proceedings. Um, there was a fear that behind closed doors, we would be cooking outcomes and endorsed practices um, pushed by industry. This is definitely not the case. Just while we speak, there is an open forum going on In the internet with um, farmers and herders and fisher folk from all over the planet to make their voice heard. What you see is what you get. It's all done in the open. We are basically running a massive engagement process through the action tracks that I already mentioned, but also through an instrument of country level dialogues, which are now being convened in more than 110 countries and counting. And we made in the planning phase of this summit, we invested a lot of energy in thinking about in the spirit of an SDG summit, how can you make sure that those furthest behind who normally have difficulties making their voices heard, indigenous constituencies, rural women, people with disability, how can they be coming in even if some governments wouldn't include them? And for that, there's an instrument of independently organized food system summit dialogues that literally everyone can convene. And there are feedback forms so we can make sure that what we hear from the world is really and truly representative. Um, One last bit I wanted to say is a very close cooperation with the Committee on World Food Security. The chair of the Committee on Food Security is Um, part of our advisory committee. We are doing many events together. And we have uh, invited um, both the um, private sector mechanism of the Committee on Food Security and the civil society mechanism to take institutional seats in um, the action tracks. The private sector mechanism has accepted this invitation so far. Civil society mechanism, unfortunately not, but the door is wide open and we continue um, to reach out to all
0: walks of global civil society. That was Martin Frick of the UN's Food Systems Summit, and we'll be hearing more from him later in the programme. But coming up now, how IFAD's getting geared up for its role as UN anchor for Action Track 4 in the Food Systems Summit.
1: EFAT is a UN anchor organization on the Food Systems Summit's Action Track 4. This focuses on advancing equitable livelihoods. It's designed to contribute to the elimination of poverty by promoting full and productive employment and decent work for all actors along the food value chain. It also aims to reduce risks for the world's poorest, enabling entrepreneurship and addressing the inequitable access to resources and distribution of value. A key input to the discussion will be IFAD's Rural Development Report.
0: I spoke to IFAD's Associate Vice President, Micah van Ginneken, and asked her for a sneak peek at what the report will be headlining.
3: It really is about uh, driving change by a next generation of rural agri-food entrepreneurs. Rural development is changing. Food systems are changing. How do we take a livelihood lens so that uh, the next the changes in the food system benefit everybody, women, men, young, old, across all the countries of the world? So if you think about transforming food systems, you're trying to optimize nutrition. We want to end hunger, livelihoods, we want to end poverty and environment. We want to make sure, That we live within the boundaries of our planet with a changing climate. And of course, there's trade-offs between the three different dimensions of food systems: nutrition, livelihoods, and environment. The lens we take in the RDR is a livelihood lens. How can food systems transform to overcome rural poverty and inequality for the next generations? Rural people's livelihoods are diversifying very rapidly. Most rural households in Africa. And in Asia, still farm, but they combine farming with other sources of income, paid labor, having a small and medium enterprise, remittances and social protection. And especially female-headed households in youth and indigenous people are often landless and depend entirely on non-farm income. So we're looking at how opportunities will come from branching out of farming into activities in the food system, in the midstream of the food system food processing, manufacturing, transport and retail. That's where the opportunities are to make a good livelihood.
0: Now, we we have the um, pre-summit in July for the food systems and we have the actual summit itself in September. Why does the world need another summit?
3: Let me be very clear. What What the world needs is action. And the reason that we have these summits is because summits can generate the action we know. So it's not a summit per se, but the summit as a milestone for change. Why do we need people to come together at a very high political level, whether from the public sector, the private sector, or from civil society? It's because food system transformation is so deep and so politically different, so difficult. So we're trying to generate political will and momentum to actually challenge um, some of the existing paradigms and to really start taking on the challenging aspects of disabled. So targeted actions, a level playing field in, in trade and markets, and strong governments
0: that give everybody a voice. So what is IFAD's perspective on the Food Systems Summit? And what does IFAD bring to the debate, do you feel?
3: IFAT has a very rich experience of working with rural communities on SDG2, Sustainable Development Goal 2, Ending Hunger, and also, of course, SDG1, Ending Poverty. So we can bring a sense of reality and a very rich field experience to the summit. And I think earlier you asked, why does the world need another summit? We need that summit to generate action, but we also need to make sure that that summit is actually rooted in local reality. And that's what IFAD can do. With the knowledge we have out of our projects, out of our partnership with communities, with government, we actually know what works, what doesn't work. And we can also help to squarely keep the agenda on the priorities of where it needs to be, on action, on livelihood, and on rural women, so that we don't make this summit just another talk shop but we actually make sure that this summit generates the action so we end poverty together.
1: That was IFAD's van Vanginiken. Next up, we hear more about the role of youth in changing and enhancing food systems.
0: You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Kayla Carvalho. Gender inequality affects women in all fields. In the world of the professional kitchen, despite home cooking being associated mainly with women, most of the best-known chefs are still men.
1: I spoke with Brazilian chef Bela who told us more about why that is and how to change it. She also explained the role chefs have in changing or improving food systems. I think
4: it's a lot due to the fact that we live in a country, in a world, in fact, with a patriarchal culture. This means that leadership positions are not inviting to women. You see that in their houses and homes women cook much more than men. But then we also have gourmet fancy kitchens and houses where men cook their meals and their barbecues and the likes. We also see men leading positions as chefs of professional kitchens, and I believe that happens because we grew up with a culture in a society that does not attribute leadership positions to women. Today we see, although the number is growing, that few women still hold positions as CEO of companies, for example. The same issue happens in professional kitchens.
1: And how can we encourage more women to become chefs? Is it possible to achieve greater equality in that field?
4: I think that happens through education and through a process of trust. It is necessary to transmit this possibility of leadership to women. It is fundamental to do so. We need to tell them that, yes, we can be wherever we want. We can lead a kitchen. We can be the chef of a professional kitchen. We can lead a company. We can, in short do anything that society often does not attribute to women or think they are incapable of doing. This lack of trust in women is very much associated with jobs that require sudden strength or sometimes a certain intellectual effort. Society told us, and we grew up thinking that, No, women can only do things related to motherhood, home, health, or only have careers in fields such as medicine, nursing, and services in general. Not necessarily powerful positions, though they can be. So I think this change can happen through education. We need to raise people, women, girls, knowing that they can do what is required, entrusting them with any kind of work. They can do anything. I think that's very important.
1: What do you think is the role of chefs in general in relation to the conscious and sustainable consumption of food?
4: I think chefs have a very important role. They are responsible for creating culinary fads, so to speak. And I think we can use this in a very responsible and positive way to achieve the change that we would like to see in society in relation to food. Chefs have this opportunity to work directly with food producers. We can understand what producers need to sell more how we can help to improve and change the type of food production, how to have a more organic, more agroecological, more biodiverse production. We can take foods that people often do not know how to use, do not know how to consume, and make enjoyable, fun dishes with these types of food. We can really make people know and expand the diversity on their menus. I think the role of the chef is very much related to that. Making this bridge between the farmer, between the field, and the table, the dish, the consumer. By bringing biodiversity to the plate, working with agroecological products and having responsibility for the production of farmers, Helping them to make a living in the field, all of this is a way for us to think about a more sustainable world. So I think the role of the chef is in the middle ground between the field and the table.
1: Thank you, Bella Gil. Bella is also part of the eFed Recipes for Change program. You can find out more about her Chef Initiative at www.efat.org forward slash Recipes for Change. If you want to hear more stories from the world of farms, food, future, go to www.efat.org forward slash podcasts. In episode 11, we talked resilience building in the time of COVID. In episode five, indigenous people's leaders joined the program. And in episode three, young people showed us how it should be done. Next, we'll be talking about indigenous peoples in Thailand and their food system.
0: This is Farms Food Future. Indigenous peoples have unique food systems adapted to the specific ecosystems of their territories. With specialized techniques and crops, they can protect the soil while also keeping a nutrient-rich diet. IFAD's Indigenous Peoples Assistance Facility has funded the Pakar Ken Yao Association for Sustainable Development in Thailand. This project aims to mobilize the traditional techniques of the Karen people and pass them on to the younger generation.
1: Prazer Strakansopakon told me about the dangers faced by indigenous food systems and the resilience of the Karen people in Thailand as they face the COVID 19 pandemic and strategies to protect indigenous knowledge.
5: Uh, the strategy to enhance the food system, uh, and the most important to raise awareness on the importance of you know, indigenous food system and nutritional values. Another strategy: the participatory mapping on rich, nutrient-rich, like climate resilience indigenous crops. Map be a local food sources site and areas identified. And we bring around five species for analysis in the laboratory. Another strategy, a nutrition class for, especially for adolescent, that uh, mostly the students between the 13 to 18, to support the knowledge and raise awareness to the young people of food products, food system based on traditional uh, agriculture, like the rotation farming system.
1: How are indigenous food systems endangered nowadays?
5: Oh, endangered, yes. I can say that uh, we found that more than 200 species of the local food in our farming area, especially in the heritage farming agriculture area. But we said the system of the road farming are uh, not a really uh, guaranteed, secured by policy law because uh, the government regulation and laws still not recognize this system. Some of the area that they still try to erase the people with the people practice that this tradition recorded. So this uh, danger to the local people on continue that traditional system and also continue the local food system through the uh, variety of species in the land, uh, the, in their family land. These are the first one. And at the same time, I can say that the government and big company try to support and promote the monocrop in the indigenous uh, community uh, area to create as a permanent land use. And there become a, a lot of chemical and uh, pesticide to use and the soil erosion and problem of uh, 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 pollution coming. That also uh, uh, marginalized the local food, local system, local variety. This another. Uh, in that year process.
1: Taking into consideration the COVID-19 pandemic, what are some of the project's main achievements?
5: We can say that uh, the local people based on the traditional way of agriculture and also the food for the forest, that they, they can survive. That means that the uh, people, they are not uh, troubled, on uh, how to look for food, but we already have their own food. In the same time, they also can share to others. Like uh, we have a small program of rice exchange with the fish uh, with uh, the, uh, the indigenous people in the island. See, they don't have rice, but they have fish. So we try to exchange the product of fish and we have rice, so we exchange to Support each other is a one uh, a very very interesting and very good uh, mechanism to help each other. At the same time, we also collect uh, the product, especially rice and some kind of, to to share to the people in the city, especially the poor people. They don't have food, so this is another thing. Another thing, we also work with the middle class or the organic farming consumption group as uh, create the product for the community to bring to them and uh, we, said we exchange and we said they, they uh, give some money back to the community. We said community they uh, have also income for that process. And uh, more and more of consumer increasing the city. So did this uh, some of the example of achievement.
0: Thanks to Praset prakansupakon If you want to hear more stories from the world of farms food future, go to www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts. In episode 20, we talked about World Environment Day. In episode 19, we heard about the mental health crisis in agriculture. And in episode 18, we celebrated International Women's Day. Next, we'll be talking about plastics and their role in our food systems
1: are listening to Farms Food Future, wrappers, shopping bags, containers, and more, we've all seen ways that our food and plastic are intertwined. But what we may not know is how to cut down these plastics and packaging. Our reporter, Ryan Weicht, spoke to two experts about the different places that plastic can become a part of our food system and our lives.
6: One of the biggest challenges to creating more sustainable agriculture is the plastic needed to get food to our plates. Plastics affect us at many levels, some that we might not even consider, especially if we are unaware of how our food systems work. Luckily, many groups around the world are working hard to help us solve and better understand our plastic problems. One such initiative is the Green Tractor Scheme, a project started by farmers and farm plastic collectors that wants to make all agricultural plastics recyclable by 2030. We spoke to Mark Webb, director and chairman of the Green Tractor Scheme, about how reducing plastic in food packaging is complicated but beneficial.
7: We all know that in terms of packaging plastic, less is better. Consumers demand that less packaging materials are used. And if you're a farmer or involved in industry, packing, packaging materials are largely seen as a necessary evil in terms of the cost. And anything that we can do to reduce it is going to benefit everybody. It's less cost for manufacturers, that means it should both be cheaper and more environmentally popular with the consumer.
6: Clearly, the plastic packaging that carries our food through the supply chain is no good for the earth or for production costs. However, another surprising issue with such plastics is their potential effect on our health. The Food Packaging Forum is a foundation that studies exactly that. Using scientific data, The forum compiles information about the health impacts of what's around what we eat. We spoke to Dr. Jane Munke, the Managing Director and Chief Scientific Officer at the Food Packaging Forum to find out more about the topic.
8: Microplastics um, are tiny, tiny little plastic fragments. They can have many different shapes. They can can also be fibers, for example, if you're looking at uh, textiles. And we ingest these tiny particles with the food when when we eat plastics. Um, So we do know that humans are being exposed to microplastics through air pollution, for example, but also through the food that we eat, be it from the packaging or be it from environmental sources that then end up in the food. We don't know exactly what the health impacts are of microplastics but the flip side of that is that we also can't say if they're safe or not right now so the verdict really is open Um, we don't have the scientific empirical evidence to confirm the safety of these microplastics
6: alongside our health another unexpected point where plastics come into the picture is during the farming itself as mark webb told me these farm plastics are present in many places
7: We've all seen the negative impacts of agricultural plastics, certainly prior in the UK prior to the ban on burning and burying them in 2006. Our scheme is there to help a long line of initiatives, which has reduced the volume of plastics. Things like liquid fertiliser is much more prevalent now than, than it was before, and so moving away from granular fertilisers has reduced the need for plastic polyprop fertiliser bags. We've more recently seen the introduction of clear wrap for silage bales, reducing the black wrap, which is much more difficult to recycle, and uh, more concentrated chemicals, so less chemical, high-density plastic cans required. We've got a long way to go. Thankfully, a
6: sustainable future is on the horizon, with many ideas about our path forward. Not all of these ideas have to be huge tasks. As Dr. Jane Munke told us, progress can even start with a change in our attitude about plastic packaging.
8: I would really like people to stop thinking about sustainable packaging and to start thinking about sustainable food products. And when, for example, um, some creative, um, energetic young person who's starting a, a food startup, for example, starts thinking about their product, ideally... The minute they start thinking about what product can I make, they will also start thinking about how am I going to transport that product? How am I going to package it? Because that needs to be an integral part of a business model development. And by kind of shifting that mindset from, uh, okay, we've got this product, how should we package it to we're making this product and the packaging is part of the business model, I think we will get to having more sustainable packaging in that sense, meaning for me at least the definition, packaging that is safe in all of its life stages, that does not contain hazardous chemicals, that doesn't damage the environment, that doesn't uh, emit fossil carbon into the uh, atmosphere without removing it again and so on. So carbon neutral basically.
6: And Mark Webb told us that there are great ideas for plastic reform across the food production supply chain as well.
7: So overall, that's a good start, but there's clearly room for more plastic uh, to come back to be recycled, presented in a better way, less contamination, preferably and probably the big ask for us is that it is not mixed as in type. And we are working alongside APE in the UK who have produced an initiative to collect a levy, the producer responsibility levy of plastic non-packaging plastics, which is then being used to fund gate fees for recycling. That is in its very early stages, with first lorry loads of plastic only having moved in the last fortnight. But that's a good initiative. That will reduce our costs. That means we will, as collectors, which means we will reduce the costs that farmers have to pay. And all helps get more plastic reused and recycled. So while global awareness about our plastic problem
6: is growing, there is still a long road ahead, especially with our food systems. But worldwide efforts for plastic reform in our food systems are happening, and we are learning important lessons about creating a sustainable future every day.
8: As we move forward and try to adapt our society to become more um, uh, resilient and more more in line with nature's principles as we live on this planet. We need to develop systems that make sure that food packaging is not something that turns into waste.
6: As we've seen, it will take a large effort to increase the resilience of our food systems, but we're up for the challenge. To learn more about the Green Tractor Scheme and the Food Packaging Forum, visit (music) eFOD.org.
1: Thank you to Ryan for that story. Coming up, we'll be talking about food miles or the impact that food can have on its way to our table.
0: You're listening to Farms Food Future. Wondering what to eat tonight? Maybe we'll be able to help you. Through your dietary decisions, you can have a positive impact on the environment. So there are many ways to start eating more sustainably. One factor to consider is food miles, or how far your food travels before it gets to your plate and the resulting pollution. Here's our reporter, Ryan Weicht, to tell us more about food miles and how to properly factor them in to your meals. Today's
6: global food systems are complex and highly intertwined with our efforts for a sustainable future. Research tells us that food accounts for anywhere between a fourth or a third of our greenhouse gas emissions. One way to help cut down on those emissions on an individual basis is eating more sustainable diets. The Food and Agriculture Organization, or the FAO, of the United Nations defines sustainable diets as those diets with low environmental impacts that contribute to food and nutrition security and to healthy life for present and future generations. A factor to consider when building a sustainable diet is the food miles in your meals. Food miles are the distance food is transported throughout its production until it reaches the plate. When it comes to food miles, however, it is often not the distance that matters most, but the mode of transportation. For example, airplanes are far more carbon-intensive than road, rail, or sea transport. So avoiding air-freighted food is a great place to start reducing the impact of your food miles. Some have also proposed buying food locally as another way to cut down on your food miles. While this is a good place to start, the choice is often more complex. For example, produce bought locally but not in season might have a far larger carbon footprint due to the refrigeration costs of producing it than produce driven from a region where the crop is in season. The truth is, our food systems are highly complex. So while carbon footprints and greenhouse gas emissions are very valuable metrics, it is also important to consider other elements like land use, water footprint, energy use, and socioeconomic factors like nutrition and health. Thus, Keep considering your food miles, especially for foods that are often shipped by air. But make sure to continue focusing on other important measures, such as reducing red meat consumption and reducing food waste.
0: That was Ryan Veicht on food miles and sustainable eating. Coming up, Kayla will be taking us to meet some farmers out there on the front line of food systems.
1: Over the next few episodes, we'll be sharing some rural voices, When it comes to food systems, it's really important that we listen to the people on the front line of agriculture, the small-scale farmers and producers themselves.
0: We'll be hearing directly from them from their land about the concerns and worries they have on a day-to-day basis and what IFAD and the world can do to help them improve their livelihoods. Today, we'll be hearing from three different farmers and producers from around the world.
1: Let's start with Temesgen Chain, a wheat farmer from Ethiopia. We started by asking him, what is the biggest challenge you face in agriculture?
9: During planting season, we don't have enough time to remove bukaya, an invasive weed, We would very much like to get hold of a tool or a machine to help us remove it. In the coming months, as we approach the rainy season, we worry it will damage our crops if it starts raining. If we could get support in accessing these tools and help set up a smallholder community to support us and help us purchase the machinery, that would make our life easier. Climate change has caused some drought and reduced our capacity to access water. And this has also affected some of our wheat crops. We would like to get access to a fast-maturing wheat variety. And if possible, we would welcome support in setting up links with producers to help purchase these seeds. We want to see change and continue seeing such impressive increases in the yields using cluster-centered schemes that we're using to change our livelihoods. We would like to have access to and better delivery of quality seeds. Furthermore, instead of plowing with pools, we can, through a community-driven approach and with the support of government, use and access modern tools such as tractors, which would improve our productivity. I want to educate my kids and give my family the opportunity to grow towards a better future so they can bring change. Back to our rural voices again.
0: This time we're heading to Bhutan to hear from Kindley Penjo, a 27-year-old food processor who makes cookies and vegetable pickles. He'll be talking about the issues and worries he has on a day-to-day basis and what he would like to improve his situation. The main challenges that we face during
10: our operation is uh, our value-added products are all made uh, without any uh, automatic machines. So uh, we are having difficulties in uh, fulfilling our demands, even if there is more demands. If we can uh, procure uh, some automated machines, then uh, our life can be made easier. And there will be any time consuming work for us and whereby we can produce and uh, supply in our products in uh, bulk quantity. Main challenges that we face during our operation is uh, procuring raw materials at a right price due to climate change, and you know, all uh, even farmers are having difficulties in uh, producing their agricultural products. I want to tell or suggest to all leaders to support the youth around the world and uh, make their life better uh, uh, by infusing them with uh, skills and uh, infusing their mindset with uh, a better life uh, skill and discipline. Our hopes uh, for the future is uh, to have a successful operation of our business and even uh, reduce the imports of uh, similar kinds of products into our country and increase our export and even uh, help farmers and give them a sustainable livelihood opportunities and uh, give uh, more youth uh, employment opportunities.
1: And for our third and final rural voice for this episode, let's head to Peru and hear from Young Food producer Shirley Kazachagua. Shirley is president of the Generación YANAC Artis- Artisans Association, which helps empower women by promoting local handcraft business activities. We started by asking her what the biggest issue was for her and other young producers in the area.
11: The biggest challenge faced in earning a living is the issue of gender gaps. We're looking for equal opportunities, equal respect and responsibility. The things that would make my life easier are equal opportunities and well-paid jobs for women. Also, having access to technology and machinery so that we can work in a productive way. The biggest challenge in growing our own food is due to our geographical location for two important reasons. The first is the lack of water, since we need it for any type of cultivation. And the second one is the lack of roads, since we know that when we have that, most places tend to develop and grow. The technologies that would make life easier for us would be an improved internet network, since through cell phones and computers, We can offer our products, our place, our culture to the whole world, and they would get to know us. Another technology that would make life easier for us is the issue of solar panels, since we often lack electricity. I would like to ask world leaders to be a watchdog with large industries because they contribute more to climate change and this hurts all of us who live on this planet. I would also like to ask them for more support for sustainable development projects. My hopes for the future and that of my family are to live in harmony with nature because no matter what continent, country or republic you live in, We all are children of the earth and we live of it. My hopes for the future as a woman is that the gender gap will be eliminated and that all women in rural and urban areas have the equal opportunities in terms of education, health and work.
1: Thank you to Michelle Porter for those three reports on Rural Voices and we'll have more next episode. Coming up, we head over to the UN's Asia-Pacific Climate Week.
0: This is Farms Food Future. In July, we see the third of the UN's regional climate weeks. This month, it's the turn of the Asia-Pacific region. These regional weeks intend to build momentum towards success of the big event COP26 in November in the UK. They take the pulse of climate action in the region, explore climate challenges and opportunities, and showcase ambitious solutions. I spoke to Kisa Mafalila, Regional Climate and Environment Specialist for the Asia-Pacific region, and asked her about the focus of the meeting.
12: The Regional Climate Week uh, will focus on particularly three tracks that are promoting climate adaptation. The first track would look at what have been the policy interventions or rather policy dialogue in the region with regards to building the climate resilience of farmers, both in terms of agronomy as well as the financing structures that are available in the region but at the national level. The second track we look at climate resilience at the local level of the smallholder farmer. How has the region done exceedingly, exceedingly well in terms of helping or supporting farmers be able to adapt to the climate shocks, such as floods or prolonged uh, periods of drought. The third track, we look at the urban setup. How have the cities in the region been able to assess their vulnerabilities with regards to climate change? And how have they moved forward in establishing or um, designing cities that can be considered to be climate smart?
0: So, where does IFAD fit into all this? Which area of our work feeds into which track?
12: IFAD's work feeds perfectly well in the second track, given our mandate, which is to build the resilience of smallholder farmers to the shocks of uh, climate change. We are looking at highlighting what the ASAP funds have done in the region through the six projects that it has funded for the past five years and harvest or put together the Lessons learned or the innovations or the experiences that are coming out of the six funded projects by the ASAP.
0: If you were to look more deeply into those six projects, what would be a couple of the of the headlines from those that you will be promoting and sharing at the Climate Week?
12: We will be looking at innovations in terms of uh digital. Uh, technology that the fund has promoted uh, and it is really increasing productivity while at the same time building the resilience of farmers. We are also looking at how different uh, approaches of, uh, of farming are actually strengthening Or the resilience of ecosystems to really withstand the climate shocks. And in that area, we'll be looking at uh, uh, approaches like the use of agroecology in our farming systems. And with regards to technology, we have two fantastic projects in Vietnam, as well as uh, Bangladesh, where we are promoting technology that can really be scaled up. For example, in Vietnam, the farmers are currently using their smartphones to be able to monitor the salinity levels in their party fields and be able to address or uh, to, uh, to be able to respond to the levels of salinity and pH at real time. With regards to Bangladesh, it is a country that is has pioneered An early warning flash flood system that alerts the farmers a month before the monsoon uh, rain uh, comes for them to be able to harvest their rice crop before it is completely destroyed by the flash flood. Both of these technologies are considered to be uh, pioneers, I would say, in the region and ready. For scaling up in other countries or in other regions, we will also be looking at the systems or the vehicles of financing flows. How resilient are they in not only building the climate resilience of farmers, but whether they have been able also to respond to the impacts of COVID 19?
0: Thank you to Ifad's Kisa Mafalila talking about the Asia-Pacific Regional Climate Week. Coming up, we hear once again from the UN Special Envoy's Deputy for the Food System Summit, Martin Frick.
1: Earlier in the program, we heard from Martin Frick, Deputy to the UN Special Envoy for the Food System Summit. Well, he's back.
0: I asked him a bit more on how the summit will look as a virtual event. We are a small secretariat and believe it or not, in the whole of
2: the preparation process, the team has never met in person. It's also a new experience um, for myself. And while it took a little while to get adjusted to this new digital reality, um, we have seen in many instances that it really can become a machine of inclusiveness because you don't need to travel across continents to meet people face to face, to have a conversation, to learn from people about what's going on, to include um, people who would normally not be supported to travel to another country. That's the good side of it. But we must not forget that there is a digital divide, that in many parts of the world, people are still struggling to have a fast enough internet connection to participate in these webinars or where it is available, that it is costly, particularly in low-income countries. So we continue to work with representatives to ensure that we really leave no one behind. We will make digital inclusion a part of the solution package that this summit is going to present for voluntary action. And we just hope that. Um, there will be more organisations supporting us in connecting to their constituencies because we fail to do our job if we are not really um, bringing the voices of everyone to the table.
0: We have coming up on the 19th of July the the pre-summit for the Food Systems Summit. What what do you hope to tangibly achieve through that in particular?
2: I think at the pre-summit we will have... uh, stocktake of by now more than two thousand submissions that we have received for um, solutions for food systems we have built 15 action areas hosted by our action tracks and they should be the crystallization point for coalitions and um, networks of actions that we can present at the BRIE summit with an open invitation to governments and everyone else to join and to bring um, these coalitions around issues like school feeding, blue food, sea grass, holistic grazing, agroecology, all of these issues really to a strong point um, at the summit moment itself. We will also hear from many countries that have been doing or are finished doing their food system summit dialogues on their way forward in creating pathways towards the 2030 um, moment. These can be inspirational for others. Um, There can be coalitions that are emerging between countries that are working on similar issues. So it will basically be the presentation of a huge, huge piece of work in progress in the hope that many others are being inspired, coming forward with their own commitments, with their participation in the coalitions and really start driving the agenda on food systems forward, towards the achievement of the SDGs, where we are at the moment so far behind.
1: You can follow Martin Frick on Twitter at CM And that brings us to the end of this edition of Farms Food Future on food systems. Thanks to our producer, Francesco Manetti, our reporters, Ryan Veigt, Michelle Porter, and everyone else who's worked on this programme.
0: But most of all, thanks to you for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.ifad.org forward slash podcasts as we head towards the main event the food systems summit in september we will also have more on the big issues that are being discussed in our next two editions of this podcast remember we want to hear from you what do you think about our stories and issues discussed and who do you want us to be talking to so please get in touch with me or kayla at podcasts at ifad.org
1: and send us your voice or text messages to that address and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast, be our favorite podcast platform and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of July with more news fresh from the farm, with news on vertical agriculture, aquaculture and young farmers in Mozambique.
0: And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson.
1: And from me, Kayla Carvalho and the team here at EFAD. Thanks for listening.